Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done nearly 550 of them now. If this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu. This program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers, so if you appreciate it and would like to support it, there's a PayPal button on every page of this of the website, and there's also a page of that explains other ways of donating if you don't want to use PayPal. My guest today is Stephen G. Post, Ph.D., a.k.a. The Boy. We'll, <laughs> <laughs> we'll explain what that means in a minute. Stephen is an opinion leader and public speaker. He is the best-selling lead author of Why Good Things Happen to Good People, How to Live a Longer, Happier, Healthier Life by the Simple Act of Giving. He has been quoted in more than 4,000 newspapers and magazines and featured on numerous television shows, including The Daily Show. Was that John Stewart or uh, Trevor Noah? Oh, Oliver came out here. Yeah, John Oliver actually oh, okay. came out to Stony Brook. Oh, cool. Yeah, he used to be on The Daily Show with John Stewart. That's right. That, that must have been a hoot. Oh, my God. <laughs> Described by Martin E.P. Seligman in Flourish as one of the stars of positive psychology, Dr. Post is a leader in research on the benefits of giving and on compassionate care in relation to improved patient outcomes and clinician well-being. He is the founding director of the Center for Medical Humanities, Compassionate Care, and Bioethics at Stony Brook University School of Medicine in New York. In 2001, he founded the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love, so named by philanthropist Shijan Templeton, who selected him as the Institute's president. And I'll have a, a link to that, unlimitedloveinstitute.org, on Stephen's page on BatGap. The Institute is a nonprofit that investigates kindness, giving, and spirituality. Dr. Post has written popularly on this topic in God and Love on Route 80, The Hidden uh, Mystery of Human Connectedness, which I read most of in the previous week and also listened to many hours of Stephen's other talks and interviews as I was walking in the woods, which is plenty of time to do these days. So thanks, Stephen. It's been good getting to know you over the past week, and it's great to meet you in person. Well, it's a delight for me. Thank you, Rick, for all your preparation. Oh, I, I enjoy it. You know, I think that that to which you give your attention grows stronger in your life. So I'm really grateful to be able to put my attention on such positive, constructive, spiritual stuff all the time. It's really what I have always wanted to do and have done as much as I could over the years. So where would you like to start? You went on a journey uh, when you were a, a young man, and that forms the core of your book, God and Love on Route 80. You want to start to how that came about, or is there something prior to that that you want to cover before we get into that? Well, that sounds like a good starting point. So I was up at a high school in New Hampshire, a place called St. Paul's, and at the age of 15, I had a recurring dream. It recurred six times over the course of a year, and it was mysterious to me because I wasn't a big believer in dreams. I would, early in the morning, be kind of awake but not quite awake, and there would be this silver, misty road to the west, and I would be walking on this road, 
I didn't know where it was going. And then uh, toward the end, I looked to the left and I saw the contours of the face of a young man with stringy blonde hair. And he looked like he was leaning off the ledge about to jump. And then a blue angel appeared, all of the, the mist evaporated. And she said in a feminine and soft voice, if you save him, you too shall live. And then the dream was over. Can you describe what the angel looked like? I've heard you tell that story many times, but you've never described what it looked like, what she looked like. It was was the face only. Okay, just the the face. face. Was it beautiful, beautiful face? Beautiful face, yeah. Luminous, radiant, but mainly very kind and empathic and soft in its qualities and just sort of blue and kind of a light blue and, and just those, those words. And then the angel disappeared and the dream was over and I would go to the chapel. We had to go to chapel in the morning every day and I would meditate for a bit when I had those days of, of the dream. And uh, I wondered if it meant anything at all. You know, we had a class in sacred studies with a wonderful Jungian Episcopal priest. And I would talk about this with my friends. And we wondered, was this meaningful? Was it the oversoul? We all read Emerson's oversoul. Or was it just my own mind kind of cranking stuff out in a desperate detour, seeking for meaning? When you were 15 and having this dream, did you even then think that was an angel? Or do you now interpret it that way years later, that it was an angel? Well, I thought it was an angel at the time, and I wasn't uh, a believer in angels. Uh, so that was, uh, that was a mystery to me. And again, I really had no sense of the, of the value of this dream. I wasn't sure if it was true or, or not. But I, it did uh, convince me to actually throw in a college application to read college in Portland, Oregon, because somehow I knew I was going to the West. And, and, uh, and it was very surprising for my friends because not too many kids from St. Paul's went out to Portland, Oregon. Right. They're all Ivy League guys. Ivy. Yeah. For the most um, part. I just want to make one comment about the fact that this happened early in the morning whenever you had this dream and you had it half a dozen times. It's, it's said that the, the junction point between sleep and waking is kind of a, an opportunity for cognitive, deep, sort of insightful experiences, which aren't actually dreams. They could be more the premonition type things or, you know, some, some sort of cognitions. There's a kind of as if a gap between the waking and sleep states in which we can sort of dip into the transcendent or into subtler realms in which such things can be more readily experienced. I, I truly believe that. And I, uh, an early riser, I'm up about four or five to my wife's consternation. And the, the Kabbalistic rabbis, um, tell me that uh, the early morning is the space for this because when you just wake up from sleep, you could be any place. You're really not sure what time it is. Time doesn't matter, and you're not caught up in the chronology of the day. Uh, and you're also thinking, well, you know, where am I? You know, I wake up and I'm sure if I'm in Cleveland or New York. So there's a sense in which in that space we're a bit beyond time and place. And when you think of the supreme, supreme being, uh, whatever the tradition might be, 
it usually is described as existing beyond time and space. And, and so when you are in that space yourself, that quality of being early in the morning, you have more of an opportunity to connect deeply with that ultimate reality. Yeah, I agree. And of course, the yogis of India understood this as well. And it would, th- th- there's even a name for it. It's called Navaswan, that, that time mm-hmm. of day. And um, they would get up early and meditate. And they probably, and they still do, I'm sure. <laughs> okay, so you had this dream half a dozen times. And you even actually went down to Yale to, because your your teacher was a graduate of Yale Divinity School, and he took you down there to tell some of the the students there about this. Yeah, there was a class at Yale Div. Rod Wells was an Episcopal priest and a Jungian, um, and he took me. He liked the dream. He he wasn't sure what to do with it, but he took me down from Concord to uh, New Haven. First time I'd ever been there, and uh, I was the centerpiece for a class on adolescent spirituality and i talked about the dream and then 13 or 15 or so young masters of divinity students training for careers in the in the ministry they were asking me questions uh what did it mean to me was it deep did it change my behavior um and what i really said to them was well we all read uh emerson up there at saint paul's and it's a nice literary piece but i think maybe i actually have come to believe in this idea of an oversoul, that somehow our minds are much more connected. I didn't use the word non-local back then. You know, that's more Larry Dossi and Deepak Chopra these days. But but I had the sense of non-locality of mind. And um, we, you know, talked about this uh, lots of times as, 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 as a class. And, and, I, and I loved being up there uh, in, in, uh, in New Haven that day. And and at the end, uh, uh, again, they asked me, you know, did I change my life in any particular way? I said, no, but I, I did apply to Reed College, which was surprising. And uh, it was just a great conversation. So I don't want to belabor that, but it was, it was the first time that I really thought seriously about the possible meaning of an adolescent spiritual experience. Because a lot of people write that stuff off. It's just an adolescent mind playing tricks. Yeah. I speak to quite a few people who, when they're children, have all kinds of amazing, beautiful experiences. They experience oneness. They may experience angels and and things like that. And then as they go into, you know, puberty and adolescence, they it tends to get fogged over. And then they, they often, when they start to get around twenty, they they have a yearning to get it back again, and they get onto a spiritual path. And the reason I'm talking to them is they they were successful in that and have had some sort of awakening. But it seems like a lot of people. Um, who get keen on spirituality later on have inklings or inclinations for it um, when they're younger. I think that's true. There's a beautiful book by uh, Lisa Miller, who's at the Teachers College at Columbia, called The Spiritual Child. It was a big hit a couple of years ago, but she actually did a phenomenal study, uh, qualitative and quantitative, of the spiritual experiences of children. And she concludes that they can be extremely powerful, deep, insightful, and also uh, that spirituality is very helpful for young people in terms of preventing uh, certain kinds of behaviors that they don't want to get into. It gives them a sense of a higher purpose. Oh, absolutely. In life. And, 
seem to do that for you. I mean, you you lived a pretty clean life and circumvented a lot of the stuff that many of us in the 60s and so on went plowing through. Speaking of young people, Ian Stevenson of the University of Virginia did extensive research on children who remembered their past lives. And usually it was little children because as soon as you get a little older, you start forgetting them. But I I don't know, it might have been a couple thousand kids that he interviewed and in many cases corroborated their memories with actual places and people and events. Yeah, I don't have that experience, but I'm familiar with the writings about it. And and, 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 and it's another example of how children can have tremendous insight and even wisdom in that child within uh, that's there and that we want to try to stay in touch with, but somehow it gets clouded over and obscured in the journey of life because we get caught up in so many things that are really not not that useful. Yeah. Okay, so you had this dream. You went to Yale and talked about it. And I, I guess eventually you graduated from St. Paul's and you were looking for a summer job and take it from there. Yeah, well, I actually had a summer job. Rod Wells had got it for me in the Bronx. I was going to be tutoring kids and I was headed for Swarthmore. I told Reed I wasn't going to show up there. Um, and and uh, my parents just hit the ceiling. They they said, you can't go do this in the Bronx because it's too dangerous. But I, I had done tutoring in uh, New Hampshire with the French-Canadian kids, and I loved doing that sort of thing. So we had about two or three days of serious argument. Uh, and And in the end, my mother actually said, well, if you insist on this, I'm not covering Swarthmore. And then I kind of relented and I said, well, okay, let's, let, let, let's think about this some more. And I said to my dad, dad, if I don't work tutoring, what am I going to do? And my dad was the president of a department store on Fifth Avenue, W&J Sloan's. It was a fancy furniture store. And he knew all of the manufacturers around greater New York who made lampshades and desks and chairs. So he said to me, well, I can get you a job at Bill De Bono's lampshade factory. And so I said, all right. And I took my dad's Mercedes 190. It was pretty clunky. Uh, he'd only bought it, I think, to look good when he dropped me off up in New Hampshire, St. Paul's. But it had seen better days. And I was driving that to Patchog, Long Island, to work uh, in an assembly line cutting cardboard in Bill De Bono's factory. So I would have Siddhartha in my pocket and I was obviously ruminating about all of this turn of events. So one Friday night, I drove out to West Hampton Beach where I had some friends from St. Paul's. And about 11 at night, I told them, I said, you know, I'm not sure I want to go to college at all. I think I'm going to go west and follow my dream. And they all knew about the dream. And they were just shocked by it. But I got in the car and I had 50 bucks. I had my classical guitar. I had a few books, and I just drove west on the Sunrise Highway. I drove through the Midtown Tunnel. I drove, for the first time, over the George Washington Bridge, and there was the sign. It said, Route 80 West. There was also a sign that said 95 South, but West was in the dream. So I followed that sign. So you you actually embarked on this trip with the dream in mind. This is like a, the dream in mind. a conscious yeah, I of... I was intentional about it, but it wasn't just the pull of the dream. It was the push of the lampshade factory. Right, that too. <laughs> and, I mean, I, and Bill the Bono's cigars. 
yeah, with his cigars and, and you know. So um, it, it was a push and a pull. And a lot of times in life, they both have to be there for you to really move forward. So I drove that Mercedes. Um, and I got to the middle of Pennsylvania. Again, I'm on Route 80. Um, and back in those days, cars had generators. And when the generator broke, all the electricity was gone. So the light was gone. The engine was dead. And just before this happened, I was thinking about doing a U-turn over the midway and then heading back home with my reputation intact. But somehow, this was not the intent of the universe. So I was able to pull the car over onto the right shoulder. And what was I going to do? There were only cornfields and wheat fields as far as the eye could see. It was about 5 in the morning. The sun was just rising. There were no telephone booths. So I did what a kid would do. I reached into the glove compartment and I pulled out a piece of paper and I wrote in pencil to the Pennsylvania State Police, please return this car to Henry A.V. Post, 44 Davison Lane East, West Islip, New York, 516-669-5655 from his son, Stephen, who no longer works in the lampshade factory. Actually, in the book, I don't use my name, but, but from his son, Stephen, who no longer works in the lampshade factory. And I got out of that car and I put my thumb out. I have my guitar, my, my wallet, my Siddhartha book. And lo and behold, a big, huge truck came along. A guy flung the door open. His name was Gary. And he said, where are you going? And I said, West. And he said, I can get you to Chicago. So that's how it began. And um, you want to pause or should I go ahead? Oh, it's okay. Uh, keep going. We're, we're on a roll now. Literally and figuratively. <laughs> I spent a couple of days in Grant Park in, in Chicago playing Via Lobos and Granados on benches. You know, uh, I've heard you mention those. What are those? Is that, is that like Spanish kind of music or classical music? Yeah, I used to play a lot of classical guitar. The kind of stuff Segovia would have played, I guess. Segovia stuff. He was my hero. Yeah, oh, okay. absolutely. And uh, so I played music and I, 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 I upped my, uh, my budget a little bit. I, I made a few hundred dollars. And then I, I ran into a group of hippies and they were heading west in a van. So I caught on with them and we got all the way to Nebraska. And just before Lincoln, one of these young ladies said to me, you know, I told them the story. They told me, you know, maybe you should consider calling your mom. So they, we, we pulled over. And there, I, I, I grabbed this payphone and I called Collect to my mother. And she picked up the phone and I said, hi, mom, it's me. And she said, thank God you're alive. We can call off the Pinkertons. <laughs> yeah, this was really obnoxious, I think, but I did say it. Mom, why did you call the Pinkertons? Didn't you get my note? <laughs> and for those in other countries and all, Pinkertons is a detective agency. Yeah, it's a detective agency. So we talked about this. I said, Mom, I bet you wish you'd let me work in tutoring and let me go into the Bronx. And she said, you know, we think that's probably right. Where are you headed now? And I said, well, I want to go out to San Francisco, and I want to spend the summer with my cousin George. He was a former Green Beret. He lived in the Mission District. And uh, that's what I'm doing. And she said, okay. So I eventually did make it to the Mission District, and George lived on 4 Chenery Street. I joined the Nichiren Shosho Buddhist Temple, which was down on the corner with Market and Chenery. So I was chanting Nam Yoho Renge Kyo. I was playing classical guitar in Hispanic restaurants. There was an old Japanese guy who'd been interned in Hawaii during the war named Gus. 
Japanese American, and he was kind of my mentor. And I had a wonderful summer. I decided I was never going to college, but I drew a bad lottery number in the draft. So this must have been about 1970, because I remember getting a lottery number that year, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was yeah. 284, so I was I was cl- in the clear. Yeah, I had a really bad number. Mm. So I called the people at Reed and I said, look, I know I turned you down, but could you give me an opportunity to come there because i got a problem? So they said, all right. And that's where this really gets interesting. Because yeah. What happens is you know, morning comes and I'm in front of the temple and there's Gus, there's little George Lamont, my cousin, a few friends. And I say goodbye to everybody. And Gus actually gives me a Gahon zone, which is one of these scrolls. It's a Buddhist scroll, and it's got lots of really beautiful symbols on it about one mind, about connectedness and interdependence and compassion. It was really quite elegant, and you know, Gus explained that to me. So I said goodbye. It's about 7, 7.30 in the morning now, and I took the Market Street bus. I got to Golden Gate Park. I walked across the park, and I, I started walking up the, the bridge. And it was misty. It was silvery gray. I really couldn't see more than maybe two or three feet in front of my face. But I was on the left side, and I got to the middle of the of the bridge. And then I heard some kind of scratching, a little bit of commotion to my left. And I wasn't sure what it was, but I looked very intently. I looked to my left, and I saw the contours of the face of a young man with stringy blonde hair, and he was leaning out on the ledge as if about to jump. Which is so what you saw, had seen in your dream, uh, uh, some guy with stringy blonde hair, right? Right, exactly. And so I said to him, he looked at me, he was actually kind of annoyed, I think, that I had invaded his privacy. I, I looked at him, and he looked at me, and I said, I truly hope that you're not planning to jump. And then he started screaming, uh, life is empty nothingness. And I recognized it was from Shakespeare, uh, from Macbeth. And I said, you know, this sounds a lot more realistic when you're out there about to jump than it did at Memorial Hall and St. Paul's School when we did it. Uh, look, why don't you just not jump because I want to tell you how I got here. And I explained to him everything. It took about a half an hour. And I s- explained it very calmly. And he wow. was settling down. I, I told him about the dream. I told him about Yale Div School. I told him about the fight with my parents, about Bill DeBono, about the car, about the note to the Pennsylvania State Police, about the Pinkertons, about everything. And then he said to me, you know, you're really crazy. And I said, well, I guess we're all a little desperate for meeting, but you're out on the ledge and I'm here on the walkway. <laughs> and, 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 and we began to strike up a rapport. And eventually I said, look, I don't want you to jump. I want you to come over. Uh, the ledge and 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 let's talk and and he said he was resistant but I said look if you do this I have a, something in my backpack that I'm going to give you it's going to change your life it'll change all of your luck everything's going to start going well for you so I said why don't you come over here and I'll explain it to you so I pulled out of my backpack my gahon zone and I unscrolled it and he saw uh, you know. He saw this, and I said, look, if I give this to you, it's going to turn your life around. You will have good luck. You'll be able to do wonderful things, and your worst days are behind you. Something along those lines. I'm paraphrasing a bit. But he did come over uh, the, the, the railing, and I explained this to him. 
And I said, his name was Harry. And I said, look, I'm going to give you a note. I wrote a note to cousin George. Uh, this is Harry. Um, please let him have a shower. Let him sleep. Sleep where I was sleeping uh, on your floor. Take him down to the Gahon Zone place, the Nietzsche and Shushu, and let him discuss <laughs> and see if you can work with him for a while. And uh, we parted amicably, and and I, I waved goodbye. And then as I walked north on the bridge, because I'm going toward Portland, Oregon, uh, suddenly all the the mist, all the gray clouds and mist evaporated completely, and it was a beautiful, bright blue sky. And I felt astonished because somehow um, my dream turned out to be a bit of a premonition. And I wondered, you know, how could that have happened? Because it was, had been two years earlier that I had the dream, and it was 3,000 miles away. But here I was. And having, having this incredible experience. Yeah. Let's dig into that a little bit. Because, you know, people hear things like that and they think, wow, that's kind of cool. And you know, some people might, you know, if they're sort of materialist oriented, they might just consider it a coincidence. Or they might think you're making the whole thing up. If they're more of a spiritual person, they might, they might think, yeah, that's really cosmic. It's far out the way that kind of stuff happens. But what does it actually signify if you actually think about it? I mean... First of all, it indicates, well, let me just suggest a few things and then you can you know, suggest others. But um, it indicates that there's some intelligence which cares about people. <laughs> it cared about Harry. And, um, and it somehow, I mean, think of all the millions of people in the world or in, in even, even in the United States. And here you are on the East Coast and he's on the West Coast. And it, it foresaw something that was going to happen two years hence, and it knew somehow that you were the guy to intervene in that situation and make a difference in that guy's life and in your own. And when you think about the, what, I mean, that, that signifies for one thing that time isn't strictly linear, um, that perhaps as some say everything is all happening simultaneously and our human filters just give it a linearity. And it begs the question, well, what is that intelligence that could calculate all that, that could know all that? And are there really angels? I mean, does the intelligence have agents or emissaries who run around and, and do little things to help in particular situations? So those are some of the things that come to my mind. So what do you think about all that? I mean, you've probably run through those same thoughts yourself, and, and those are not trivial questions. Not at all. And at the time, I was relatively naive. I mean, eventually, the, you know, the, the, the dream would drive me to quit a career in immunology, and I went to the University of Chicago Divinity School to study with Mersha Eliade and Joseph Campbell, you know. Yeah. So I learned later on about lots of different ideas on comparative spirituality and religion. But at that time, I was just knee-high to a grasshopper. It was, for me, all this idea of transcendence, of Emerson's oversoul, that our minds are profoundly connected, that each of us has a small center of a divine consciousness within us, but we're capable of premonition, we're capable of incredible creative moments when somehow the divine consciousness really breaks through to us and turns off some of those filters. So I began to accept at that point in my life this idea of an infinite mind of pure unlimited love. And that's how I felt at the time. And it was euphoric because it was so shocking. 
Yeah, and I would say that we're capable of premonition and we're capable of various things because we reflect a tiny fraction of the omniscience of that infinite mind. If it's omniscient, it knows everything everywhere, past, present, and future all the time. It's just pure knowledge orchestrating the universe from the tiniest subatomic particle to the vastest cluster of galaxies and um, doesn't break a sweat doing that. But, you know, we're a tiny reflection of that. And therefore, we have little glimmers of the capabilities in our individual mind and, and life that that vastness has in its totality. Absolutely. And we can't be open to that all the time, obviously, but we can have moments when the glimmers, the whispers, I call them winks, shine through. If you're sensitive to that, Larry Dossie, who wrote the foreword to God and Love on Route 80, he uses the word noticer. He wants us to be noticers. He wants us to just not pass by these experiences, but to kind of notice them carefully and ponder them and think about them. And from that, we engage in this, you know, people call it synchronicity, but this very deep sense of the intimacy of relationship with this infinite consciousness, which is, to use a term that John Templeton liked a lot, uh, pure unlimited love. Before we get too far away from Harry, I just want to say I thought about this as I was listening to your other interviews. This would be a nice synchronicity. If Harry happens to be listening to this interview, get in touch with Stephen. I'm going to put his email address on his webpage. Or if, if you know somebody who might be Harry, get in touch with us or get in touch with him. Harry went to North Carolina after spending yeah. some time there in, in San Francisco. So maybe that'll be a clue for you. But I think it'd be really cool if you and Harry could reconnect after all these years. It would be. Yeah, because I, what I, I went up to Reed and I came back to George's for Thanksgiving. And at that time, Harry had gotten himself together and he'd gone home to North Carolina. And that's all I knew. Yeah, that's great. I would be thrilled if... If Harry somehow got in touch with you, I think it'd be a cool, be a cool addition yeah. to your story. You could write a, an addendum to your book. Oh, well, I would. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you got over the bridge and uh, you stuck out your thumb. Take us from there. Well, there was a farmer's truck, just uh, an old farmer's truck, kind of a, a small Ford truck, and uh, a guy flung his door open again. I got a lot of truck rides in the day, and. He said, where are you going? I said, Portland. He said, I can get you most of the way. And then he said, my name's Dwayne Dill, D-I-L-L, just like in Dill Pickle. And this here is my wife, Dorothy. And she said, hello. And I got in there. And I made it most of the way to Oregon with them. And I had to get another ride, but I was up there by about uh, 6 that evening. Cool. Uh, and, made good uh, time. But it was fascinating because those were interesting times. I'd never been to the Reed College campus, but there was a, as I walked onto the green, there was a big, thin, plastic bubble type thing and lots of psychedelic colors being projected on it. And it was sort of a happening event. And there are probably 30, 40 people around. So I walked in there and, the, and I walked up to a guy who had curly red hair that was kind of boiled on the top. He had a cigar in one hand filled with, I don't know what, he had a can of beer in the other. He had a red and black lumber jacket on. He was kind of burly. And I said to him, sir, being a St. Paul's graduate, is this Reed College? He exhaled in my face, smiled, and revealed an American flag permanently ensconced in his upper right front tooth. 
And he said, yeah, little buddy. And then I walked up to the next guy I met who happened to be a freshman, became a very famous philosopher. And I said, okay, I'm at Reed College. Who was that? That was Ken Kesey. Oh, I'll be darned. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> up there. And that night I called my mother and I said, mom, I said, I got up to college and she was so happy. And I said, but guess what, mom? The first person I met, not the second, not the third, was Ken Kesey. And she was like totally silent for like three or four she minutes. She said, we should have sent she, him to Swarthmore. Oh, my God. <laughs> said, are you okay? And I said, mom, he had absolutely no influence on me yeah. whatsoever. Except he inhaled probably a trillion molecules of whatever he exhaled. <laughs> Incidentally, but for those who don't know, Ken Kesey wrote a book called The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. And the second book he wrote was called Sometimes a Great Notion, oh, yeah. which was lumberjacks up in the Willamette River Valley. So that's why he was spending time. He kind of migrated up north from San Francisco. But the motorcycle story is, is the next big episode of Premonition. Should I say something about that? Yeah. I just wanted to ask you before we continue, let's only take a second. Is Reed sort of an avant-garde school like Goddard and Antioch and schools like that? Is it sort of like a hippy-trippy kind of a place, or was it then? It always was that way. It was, it was kind of like Oberlin. It's very high level academically. You had to really be independent and single-minded to get through the place. Uh, it wasn't easy, but it was also, yeah, it was, it was a very smoky environment. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, good. Let's go on to the motorcycle. So late January, I'm in the coffee shop sitting with some friends. It's about nine at night. And this guy we'd never seen before comes bursting through the doors. He's thin. He's got a black motorcycle jacket on. He's got brown wavy hair. He looks a little lit up and he says to us, Hey, my name's Andy. Who'd like to go for a ride on my Harley Davidson shovelhead? Which at that time was like the fastest motorcycle ever made. And I'm sure he didn't give you a helmet. No, 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 no. So I looked at him and I said, I'll go. I want to, I guess, be cool. So I went out and out. It was raining a lot. It doesn't snow in Oregon, but it rains and it can get slushy. And it was a rainy, slushy late January night. So I got on the back of this bike and I grabbed hold of this guy. And he took off and he hit about 130, 140 within a minute. He went through every red light, every stop sign. He turned south on the Pacific Coast Highway and he hit 180. And he was swerving in the slush. And I thought I was dead. I I was never more frightened in my life. I didn't think I was ever going to get back. And he was screaming into the night air with the cold wind and the rain against his face. And then lo and behold, he did this incredible U-turn. And he drove me back and he dropped me off exactly where he picked me up in front of the coffee shop. And I got off that bike. My balance was gone. I looked devastated. I I honestly was shocked that I was alive. I walked across this bridge. You didn't pee pee in your pants. (laughs) No, I didn't do that, but I probably should have. I walked across this bridge over a ravine and got to Ackerman Dormitory. And as I walked across the threshold, now remember, it's so it's 11 o'clock now in Oregon, Pacific Coast time. And it's two in the morning in New York. I walked over the threshold and there's a payphone on the wall. I'd always ignored it, but I'd given the number to my mom when I told her about Ken Kesey. So just as I walked by the phone, it started ringing. And I felt kind of a little bit of a push. I can't explain it. It wasn't physical, but I just felt this pressure 
And I picked up the phone and I said, hello. And it was my mom. And she said, oh, thank God you're alive. <laughs> and I was sleeping. I, had, I woke up from my sleep. I was sweating. I was trembling. And I just had this feeling that you were dead. And I said, mom, that's amazing because I thought I was dead too. And I explained to her the story about the motorcycle. And at that time, we kind of connected. And eventually, I told her about my Blue Angel dream. And she actually painted a very, very beautiful painting of the dream because she was a pretty good abstract expressionist artist and a bit of a mystic herself. And we kind of figured out that there is this one mind, call it the oneness, call it the one mind, the infinite mind, the original mind. And that somehow or another, despite, again, 3,000 miles, she had caught on to something that was going on with me in a very special and amazingly miraculous way. So in retrospect, how strongly do you feel that if you hadn't saved Harry on the bridge, you would have been killed? Because that's, the, that's what the dream told you. It said, you know, if you save him, then you too shall live. You too shall live. Yeah. You too shall live. You kind of feel like you kind of put some good karma in your karmic bank account and that, that sort of cashed you in and cashed it out on that motorcycle and it kept you alive? Well, you know, I wasn't thinking that at the time. I, I didn't put it in the book, but now that you mention it, it sounds like a pretty interesting possibility. I really just felt, again, reaffirmed in this sense of non-local mind or connectedness. I felt very, very fortunate indeed to survive this experience. And I wondered, you know, throughout the book, I'm wondering about the meaning of those words, if you save him, you too shall live. And it kind of becomes a whole drama of my life. But at that particular moment, yeah, actually, that's a good interpretation. Thank you. Yeah. You mean that hadn't occurred to you? Hadn't really occurred to me. Uh, That seems to me the implication of the dream right there. It's like, all right, if X, then Y. And X happened, and therefore Y happened. Well, I thought about it in terms of my whole life story, my whole life account. Oh, sure, because it's given a whole direction to your life. That's true. It set my life in a certain direction. I mean, I'd have probably been a lawyer or an accountant or an investor or something in New York if this had not occurred. So So I might have become president of the lampshade factory. Yeah, I I could have risen up through the ranks. (laughs) Yeah, risen up through the ranks. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But, you know, now that you mentioned this, you know, that is a possibility, but I didn't put it together. At the time, I was just in a state of shock. And what it did do was it connected with me with my mother because uh, now we realized that we were a lot more on the same wavelength than we maybe ever thought. I'm sure we're going to be talking a, a lot more as we go along about, you know, doing good and, and the implications of that and all. But a question came in, which I'm as well asked now, and it's, it fits in with what we're talking about. It's Bob from Germany. He asks... I try to act unselfishly and good towards other people all the time, but bad things seem to happen to me constantly and also, especially, through the people I am good to. Can you shed any insight or do you have any advice? Bad things happen to good people. To me, just in response, bad things happen to me. I come to work every morning. I get up early. I meditate. I even project the major encounters I know I'm going to have, and I ask myself, does this person need compassion or simple kindness or some forgiveness or whatever it might be? 
And I really try to set up my intentionality early in the day and I visualize and such things. But there have been lots of times when things have imploded and it's just human nature is on its own terms, not necessarily a pretty thing. It's very mixed and people are capable of all sorts of nastiness. And dealing with that is not so simple, but the way I handle it is I look at every situation, no matter how challenging, kind of like a Jackson Pollock painting. That's actually in the book, you know, where Pollock out in East Hampton, New York, would throw a big gob of ugly paint down on the floor where he had his big canvas spread out. And it frankly looked terrible. But he believed that you could expand any canvas. He believed that if you put enough beautiful lines of color and energy, that eventually this would become a thing of tremendous beauty. And of course, that's how he operated. And I do believe that, that even though these difficulties arise, especially in a very dysfunctional environment, if you just keep realizing that you can expand the canvas and how you respond to things makes all the difference. I mean, I'm constantly going back in time and I'm thinking, well, there was this point, you know, 12 years ago when someone was really hurtful to me and it, it, it had a big impact on my life and it's hard to be forgiving. But then as time passes, I realize it wasn't just me. Uh, it wasn't just him who was responsible for this, but there's something about me, something about the way I interacted. Maybe it was something I said. Maybe it was insensitive. Maybe there was just a whole dynamic involved. And, and so I don't ever want to blame someone else and just point the finger and say, they're the one. I, I want to get to a point where I can realize that, hey, you know, if I had handled this a little differently and a little better, uh, so maybe I'm partly responsible for it, and I find that, that that passage of time, plus continuing to be helpful and kind to others, that'll put enough distance between you and these many hurtful episodes, you know, and things will turn. Things will turn. Don't be pessimistic. I wrote down some quotes from your book, a couple of them from the Bible. We'll explain them so that we're not just getting religious on, the, on you, Bob, Bob from Germany. But one is, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. James 5, 6. Another, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done. John 15, 7. And then there's a Sanskrit saying, which is, success of action is born of sattva. And sattva means purity, not the means. The means collect around sattva. So what all that means is that one can amass sattva or purity or righteousness or godliness and I would say primarily by spiritual practices, purify the system, and um, they enable us to imbibe more and more divine, whatever, intelligence. More attune, We attune more deeply or clearly to God, to infinite mind, and therefore as we act, as we function, it's not so much we functioning anymore, it's more and more God functioning with us as, a, as an instrument or a sense organ of, of that infinite mind. I think that's right. But to Bob, I, you know, I just want to say I take you very seriously because I've encountered people in various places who have had such difficult times. I was doing a radio show with a wonderful gal out in Vancouver who had just quit her job uh, as a nurse because she was so burned out. And she had just a lot of negative accumulated experiences. 
So it was really hard for her in that state of being in mind to even begin to connect with this idea that somehow there is this loving consciousness that can connect us in these uncanny ways. You know, Jung called it uncaused causality. But look, life is a challenge. Life is difficult. But don't give up. Be patient, because if you can be patient, then these things can come into being. I do believe that. I think the one thing that trips people up a lot is they feel that, look at all the horrible things that have happened, the Holocaust and the, this war and that, this disease, the, the current pandemic, children born with terminal diseases who die you know, in infancy. And, you know, we can, there's a whole litany of things. And so they think, how could there be a God? And if there is a God, he seems a bit sadistic. How could such horrible things happen to people in this world? It's apparently very innocent people in many cases. How do you answer that one? Well, I believe in free will. You know, like the Hindus, you know, that, that we are brought into this universe as free creatures with the intention of creativity and doing good, doing love. But if you look at the world around us, in our freedom, we do terrible, terrible things. But I never want to blame God. You know, I mean, the theologians talk about theodicy. How could this happen if there's a loving God? Well, only because as part of the whole principle of our being, we have freedom. So this is the journey, and it's really tragic. But I do believe that we're going to move into a period that is going to be incredibly uh, fruitful and incredibly loving. Uh, I actually believe we're going to get through a lot of things. Like right now, every day I'm witness to people dying in hospital settings. From Yeah, I mean, actually, we should remind people, you're in a hospital, you have a, a, a triage tent or something out in the parking lot with 100 people in it who have COVID-19 and there's 400 more in your hospital. So, you know, you're not speaking um, abstractly here. No, not at all. And, and it's, it's, it's a horrible situation. And, you know, and they're dying without any loved ones around. They're hooked up to a tube. Uh, it's really hellish. Uh, but I don't blame God for it. Um, and and I, I just think, you know, God is pure love. But God as a supreme being, doesn't control us. We can be influenced, we can notice the wings, we can hear the whispers, we can align ourselves through spiritual practice. That's the key thing. But if we don't make those kinds of internal efforts, it's very easy. You know, I say I, I practice meditation every morning, but you know what? A couple of weeks ago, I was driving down 25A early in the morning, and there was a guy in front of me who had the audacity to stop at a yellow light. And I'm confessing, okay? I fell full chested out of my horn. And even though the windows were closed, I yelled out a bit of an expletive because he didn't have to stop and I was in a super rush to get over here. Uh, it's because we get caught up in time and pressure. Ego is a big problem. Uh, the world blinds us to the inner light. And uh, that's why we have to practice in a very concerted way spirituality, yeah. however you do. One quick question, then a couple of comments. I used examples of babies getting terminal illnesses, and, but babies don't have free will. And sometimes children are uh, terribly abused by adults. 
And yet they're innocent little beings, seemingly. They don't have free will. So how do you address that one? Well, as far as being abused, adverse childhood experiences is the strongest predictor, by the way, of adolescent substance abuse. And people who experience that have heightened levels in midlife of physiological illnesses like diabetes, asthma, heart disease, and so forth. I mean, it's incredibly predictive. It's not hard, hard prediction because if you run into the right non-parent mentor who shows compassion and love, if you are in the right community, uh, spiritual community, if you have the right practices, if you marry the right person uh, who treats you with empathy and kindness, then you can overcome these things, although there's still something there. Um, <clears throat> but uh, that's a terrible thing. And, and you know, I, I'm astonished. Every, you know, we bring people into the world. We, we give birth to children. But the whole question is how do you raise a kind child? How do you role model kindness? Uh, and that's a big discussion in the literature now. How do you raise a kind child? You know, a big study at Harvard on kindness. And, okay, parents want to do everything they can to model kindness to their kids. But when you get to that age of 12 or 13, that goes on the back burner, and suddenly they're interested in you know paying off the crew coach or the sailing coach at Yale. So, so you know, I mean, it's just ridiculous. So we forget about that. But I think that's really on us as parents and families in realizing the the role of parents is not just to bring a child into the world, but to raise a kind, loving child. And we have to be that way ourselves because we're the ones who set it in motion. And if we don't, it's terribly destructive. And as far as natural evil, you know, we have a a neonatal intensive care unit here. And, you know, horrifying things happen in the process of birth. I can't explain that away. I wish it wasn't the case. You'd think with all the modern technology we have that somehow birth would be predictable. But you know what? Every birth is completely unpredictable. And there are all kinds of issues of genes and so forth. And that I cannot explain. I cannot explain it. But I... I honestly believe that it's a good thing that we have people in the world with, say, cognitive developmental disabilities or even, in some cases, dementia and whatever, because we learn that the most important thing in our lives is not getting ahead. It's not being hypercognitive and super skilled intellectually and writing everyone off, but it's realizing that we are a human family, that we are interdependent. And that the best comes out of us when we care for those who are vulnerable. I agree. Let me make a comment or two. You quote Martin Buber, either it was in your book or it was um, in some talk I heard you give about, you know, he, he speaks of I and it as being a kind of a superficial stage of human development, an appreciation of I and thou being a more profound stage. And you took it a step further to say I and I which kind of mirrors or echoes the Upanishads, Tattvamasi, that thou art, and um, Sarvam Kalavidam Brahma, all of this is that, all of this is Brahman. And so the implication of that is actually, when you get right down to it, the whole thing is God. So to speak of God as something separate from us that may be cruel to us or doing this or unaware of us or any such thing is to do injustice to the situation, I think, because ultimately it's all God. The whole thing is the divine sort of playing with itself or interacting with itself. And we're just sort of a little aspect of that, that which we regard ourselves to be. Did you want to comment on that before I continued? 
Yeah, well, there are such incredible examples of extreme altruism. Like right here in this medical center, there are many clinicians and nurses who have contracted COVID-19. Some of them have fallen quite ill. The nurses are living in apartments along the highways because they don't want to go home with their protective gear on or even off because they just feel that they're going to infect their families. Yeah. Infect their families. It's a big, big deal. Then you can say, well, okay, if you're boober, well, they're not I, it. I mean, clearly they're not treating other people as mere uh, opportunities. Yeah. Yeah, Objects and, and, and up to be manipulated. They're incredibly generous in giving. So I, thou, they see the sacred in these individuals who have contracted this illness and in one another as well as caregivers. So that idea of I, thou is very beautiful. But if you go further, and that's, Rick, where you're suggesting we go, is that there's also a kind of I, I, that because we are of one common universal mind, that consciousness within us is the same consciousness. There is only, in the end, one mind. And so when you do something like that to help another person, and I'll tell you, these clinicians are doing incredible things. It's so contrary to genetics. The genetics people would say, well, this must be some altruistic gene that went haywire. (laughs) Come on. That's pretty haywire for a gene, right? It's got to be deeper than that. So what they're doing is in helping the other, they're also helping themselves. Yeah. Because... They are themselves. I mean, the, the other is themselves. The golden rule here, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Well, as a matter of fact, ultimately, the other is you. So what Jesus said, whatsoever you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. Anyone could say that because whoever you interact with, you're actually interacting with your own self, even though you might not be perceiving it with such oneness. That's right. So that's the comment you made, thou art that, which is such a powerful thing. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's really ultimately what I learned on the bridge right. uh, from my dream. Before that, it was just an abstraction. It was just a nice transcendentalist idea. But when I encountered Harry, it came into a very granular reality to me. And it's never left me. I, you know, All my life, I've felt that presence. And it's a beautiful thing. Another thing that helps me make sense of the whole thing is the notion that if there's going to be a a universe, if there's going to be a a, a creation, and it's going to, then it's not just sort of flat, amorphous oneness, it has to have qualities. And as soon as you have qualities, you have polarities, you know, you have big and small, fast and slow, hot and cold, you know, all sorts of diverse, diverse qualities, which make up a universe. If, If everything were just one thing, it couldn't be diverse. So naturally, some of those polarities or qualities include birth and death. And death has a value. If if stars didn't die, we wouldn't exist because that's how heavier elements get created, which form our bodies and our world and everything else. If biological life forms didn't die, it would get awfully crowded around here. And naturally, they do age, given the realities of physics and biology. And at a certain point, you know, it's like, okay, this suit of clothes is really worn out and tattered, and maybe I should get a new suit. And so you do. And that's not a bad thing, even though, obviously, from a limited perspective, it might seem bad, especially if you think that all you are is this body, and as soon as it's dead, you're, you're finished. 
but I, perhaps there's a deeper reality in which you're not finished and you're just sort of progressing along with one new suit of clothes after another and learning as you go. You know, with, that's really profound because what we're dealing with right now in these hospitals is the denial of death, the fear of death. And it's born of a materialistic metaphysic. Mm. This is all we have. It's all we are. And there's nothing beyond it. And if that's the case, then people cling to life, even in the most absurd, uncomfortable, almost torturous circumstances. Yeah. With a, in every orifice, natural and unnatural. But if we would just acknowledge that there's something more, then everything would change. And it's so hard. You know, I try to work with adult children who are maybe about to lose a mother or a father who's very ill. They can't let go. But if they would step back, I know attachment is a factor psychologically, but the ones who can recognize that there is a more, that there is a kind of non-material metaphysic, it's not so difficult. It's just part of the flow. It's just a passing. Yeah. I think a lot of people realize this these days, but many people don't. And it's really beneficial to read some books or watch some videos of people who have had near-death experiences. Betty Eady, Danny and Brinkley, uh, James Von Prague, the number of people that I've interviewed who've had near-death experiences. I have a whole category on BatGap of that. There's a categorical index page. Because you, you, you put that stuff in your awareness enough, and it really creates a, a sense of ease and, and of all is well and wisely put. And it kind of broadens your perspective. It, it just naturally thins the barriers of of your individuality and makes you realize that this life is one chapter in a very long story and eliminates, I think, a lot of anxiety for many people if you, if you can just really grok on to that, that perspective. And of yes, course, the people who've had those experiences, they're like, hey, I don't know worry about dying. That was wonderful. I can't wait to get back. <laughs> one of my colleagues here at Stony Brook, Sam Parnia, moved oh, to NYU. Yeah, I very, wrote a great book about near-death experiences. Yeah, yeah pulmonologist and he's now of course knee deep in the COVID-19 situation you know 12 hours a day seven days a week but we have a big project a funded project on near-death experience because now people can be brought back after heart cessation even after believe it or not eight nine hours wow and we're asking them sort of you know not not just questions of what they saw and how it felt but also how they feel now. Do they think that they're more giving, more altruistic, more forgiving, more grateful? So that's a project in the works. But what I'm also studying, because I do a lot with Alzheimer's disease. I've written a lot in 25 years. I just I talk about deeply forgetful people. Terminal lucidity, Rick. So there's a lot of study of people with Alzheimer's disease who are in the very end of their life and they haven't spoken coherently with anybody for months or even a couple of years. And on that last day, even in those last hours, there are actual published studies in the neurology literature on this. They will be there. They will know who they are. They'll be able to ask a question. They'll be insightful. And you can ask yourself, so where's that coming from? Maybe it's from some little snippet of uh, neurological tissue that's actually still alive. But that's a push. Because how do you get a person identifying who they are and having the narrative of their story so much intact. So to me, it suggests 
that underneath that communicative breakdown and that neurological deterioration, there is still a whole being, a whole soul. Yeah, sure. Most people have heard Eben Alexander's story of he was more or less brain dead due to some, I don't know what he had, some kind of, uh, you probably remember the story. And, you know, he was flatlined EEG-wise, and he had all these marvelous experiences. And there are stories of near-death people who um, were under anesthesia during surgery, and they could describe what was happening in the room. And there's a red sneaker on the balcony outside the hospital window that nobody knew was there. They could see it from that perspective and so on. But this lucidity thing, I heard you mention, and I've often thought this myself, what if the brain is more like a computer, not in every respect, but in the respect that it can store some stuff in it, but most of the stuff gets stored in the cloud. So it's sort of like an interface with the cloud, and that's where the memories are actually stored. And so everything that that person, that Alzheimer's person has experienced all their lives is there in the cloud, and perhaps there's just enough brain functioning still viable to let that stuff come through and let them function for a few hours before they die. I actually think there's a lot of plausibility to that. You know, how does the brain store autobiographical memories and how does it just conjure up at will all these incredible imaginative images? How does our three-pound brain manage that? And a lot of people believe that it's still a mystery. The brain can explain certain kinds of memory, but in terms of the larger picture of memory, maybe we do need to change the model that somehow our memory is, shall we say, more spiritually stored. And that's why when I talk with someone who's very deeply forgetful and uh, incommunicado, I say to myself, well, they're not dead, they're not gone, they're not a husk, they're not a shell. They've got one foot down at 30th Street Station on the train to wherever it is. So they're a little bit ahead of us. Interesting. And of course, there are stories about people being in comas and so on, and um, maybe not under surgery, but in a coma, and then knowing what people were saying in the room and so on and so forth. That may also be true of Alzheimer's patients, do you think, that they seem to be out of it, but they're a lot more hip than you'd realize? Oh, to me, that's very plausible. And they're very sensitive to the empathic qualities of the people around them. They react negatively to caregivers who are harsh, and they are joyful. They're capable of all kinds of positive psychological states, joy and immense creativity, uh, you know, the, the artwork they do, the ways that music and memory brings them back into themselves. Oh, yeah, I heard you talking about that. Some guy, who he loved Cab Calloway. They played a little music for him, and he came out of this stupor and became very coherent for a while. Yeah, they're doing that all over the country, all over Canada. The Canadians are even buying people with Alzheimer's disease iPods so so that they can listen to deeply learned music, meaningful music. And about 70, 80 percent of patients will come out of their stupor and they'll even be able to converse a little bit after they've been stimulated. I mean, it's partly it's, it's bodily, it's somatic, but they kind of come into themselves and they'll sing a few lines. We have Alzheimer's poets at the Memory Center in Brooklyn. And they'll do a poem that everybody would identify with, like The Road Less Traveled. You can have 30 people there who just look out of it, but they'll get into it. They'll come back into themselves. And afterwards, they'll actually be able to respond to the right statements of, uh, uh, that you can make, questions that aren't giving them pressure. You can't say, well, what, what would you like 
for for breakfast, would you like? Uh, and then th then they freeze. But if you say, would you like potatoes or cereal, and you're queuing them, yeah. then they'll say, oh, cereal. Yeah, but definitely. You can you can bring that back. Let's say somebody has severe Alzheimer's, or for that matter, autism, or something in some condition in which they're really checked out for all you know appearances. Um, I would say that the 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 soul, the being of that person is every bit as alive and viable as the soul of someone in their prime who's, you know, totally dynamic and eloquent and articulate and, and everything else. It's just that the instrument, the tool through which the soul functions has gotten a little funky. Um, but, you know, the time will come when they'll have a, a better instrument and that same soul who seems like they're just shut down will be thriving again. It's just a stage in life. I think so, too. So in the book, you know, God, Love, and Route 80, I, I tell the story about Joe Foley, a famous neurologist. He was the president of the American Neurological Association, a co-founder of the Alzheimer's Association nationally, the, a great mentor in my life. We went out to a town in the middle of Ohio, Gambier, Ohio, which is near Kenyon College. And there's a big geriatric institute, and the whole floor was devoted to uh, older adults with Down syndrome and Alzheimer's, because a lot of people, by the time they get into their late 40s, if they have Down syndrome, they also have symptoms of Alzheimer's, which is very difficult because it's sort of a development in reverse. It, you know, whatever they've achieved, they're going to lose. We looked at the caregivers there. They were incredible. The nurses' aides, the nurses, the doctors, they were so diligent. They were so kind. The place was so collected and so calm and so tranquil. So Joe and I took a number, not everybody, obviously, but a number of them out to the only restaurant in Gambier. Uh, it's a pizza place, and we brought them we bought them pizza for lunch. And we asked them, why do you care so beautifully for these individuals? I mean, they're so deeply forgetful. Some people would just dismiss them. They're life unworthy of life. They're useless eaters, whatever it is, you know. And what they said was namaste, to your point. They said namaste, which just literally means I honor the divine in you. And I believe that's really important with these kinds of individuals. We have to honor the divine in them and notice the expressions of that consciousness and that soul. And then we can have a better time of it. That's beautiful. We can get back to that other point, which is that there's really only one of us. That which I am, essentially, is also that which the person with Down syndrome and Alzheimer's is. That inner light is being reflected differently by that particular reflector than it is in this one, but it's the same inner light, which essentially we are. And if we treat it as less than that or other than that, then we're not doing justice to the reality of the situation and we're acting against our own best interests. There's a great neurologist at Harvard named Rudy Tanzi. I know Rudy. I was going to mention him to you. Yeah, I've yeah. seen him at the Sand Conference a few times. Oh, yeah. So, I, I, Rudy, I, I know him pretty well. We've written some things together over the years, but he has some great YouTubes on terminal lucidity. He doesn't try to explain it. Everybody accepts the fact that terminal lucidity occurs, and it can occur quite commonly. The question is, what metaphysical filter do you impose on it? If you're just a materialist, then you think, well, again, it's just some residual spark of activity. But that doesn't really do very much to explain this. So he says, well, it's a mystery, 
But I do think that the more plausible, the more rational way to explain something like that is just as you're doing it, Rick, to say that there's something very profound and deep about human consciousness and identity and continuity, and we don't understand it fully, but it's there. Deepak is a good friend of Rudy Tanzi, so I'm sure he's pecking away at Rudy's materialistic uh, assumptions if he still has any left. (laughs) I wrote down a quote here because I knew we'd get to this point of materialism. As I walk down the street with the dogs or whatever, I'm always marveling at what I'm actually looking at. I'm not just looking at grass and sidewalk. I'm looking at this sort of miracle of existence. And here's an example. Carl Sagan said that a single cell contains the equivalent information content of over 10 million volumes. That would also be the cell of a blade of grass, not just a human cell. And, you know, each of these is cells is, is that complex, but it's only a few microns across, and each contains about 100 trillion atoms, and it's capable of repairing and reproducing itself. Is that randomness? Is that billiard balls just banging together? I don't see how any scientist who looks at things closely or any surgeon who watches a heart beating could be an atheist or a materialist. Here's another example, and then I'll let you respond. There are 20 elements in amino acids that combine in certain sequences to form the 700,000 kinds of proteins in our body. To make just one of these 700,000 proteins, collagen, you need to arrange 1,055 amino acids in precisely the right sequence. If this had to happen by chance, it would be like a Las Vegas slot machine with 1,055 spinning wheels, each with 20 symbols, and you had to get the same symbol on all those wheels in order to win the jackpot. The odds of achieving this through chance are far greater than the number of atoms in the universe. And that's just, again, one of 700,000 proteins. So, again, people who just think that the universe is just some kind of accident and that we're just biological robots and, the, and the, the, the universe is meaningless and so on. I don't get it. I was really fortunate to be pretty close with Sir John Templeton, and, and I've known a lot of the Templeton Prize winners who are physicists and mathematicians. Uh, certainly Paul Davies' book, The Mind of God, is classic. But most of the physicists and mathematicians that I encounter who are serious would be very open-minded about the notion that somehow these great thermodynamic constants of the universe are not arbitrary, they're perfectly set up, that underlying reality uh, at a quantum level where particles are zapping in and out of existence in a 15th of a century of a second, you know, there's got to be some tremendously powerful organizing principle. And many great philosophers and great physicists have taken this idea of one mind. So the the one mind is both within us as a matter of consciousness, but it's also in the glory of the universe. It's in the glory of the blade of grass. And I take that view. I I view everything as, uh, as an incredible gift. I talked about synchronicity earlier. So I'm in a department of, it's filled with biostats people and epidemiologists. And they would hear my stories of synchronicity, and they would say, well, you know, there was one chance in a hundred million that your mother would have called you that night from New York just as you walked in the dormitory, or there's one chance in a thousand zillion that you would have met some guy in a bridge who looked like somebody, and you can go that route if you want. But in the end of the day, it's much more reasonable to understand these things as having some spiritual intent 
and and being set up, if you will, by a loving, original, infinite mind. Yeah. Astronomer Fred Hoyle said, the chance that higher forms have emerged in this way, meaning randomly, is comparable to the chance that a tornado sweeping through a junkyard might assemble a Boeing 747 from the materials therein. Here's another one. Theologian R.C. Sproul said, if there's even one maverick molecule in the universe, there is no God. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) But see, now, I'm around a lot of high-level biologists, and I was a biology major in college. So the evolutionary approach is so profound, and in some respects, it's explanatory. But when you get to these really deeper levels, it tends, I think, to have real limitations. And more more physicists and mathematicians are open-minded about these non-materialist ideas than biologists and also than social scientists, you know, maybe because there's just so much pressure to be a materialist in the social sciences. Have you heard of Robert Lanza? I don't know much about him. but Yeah, him. he has a theory that he calls biocentrism. And he, among others, quotes the, uh, there are about 200 different variables that if any one of them were slightly off by just a tiny, tiny fraction of a percent, we either wouldn't have a universe or there would be no life in the universe or anything. So the strength of gravity or the the 200 different things, many of which I couldn't even pronounce the names of, but the, the universe is just like, and then of course, you know, materialists hear this and they get into the sort of infinite worlds model. They say, okay, perhaps there are an infinite number of universes and we just happen to be in the one where these 200 variables worked out just right, but not in any of the other ones. And therefore, this, this randomness can produce all the stuff that we see around us. They're really yeah, grasping at straws. I agree. I mean, the physicists call this idea of the world, the universe being set up to give rise to creatures who can be treasure in earthen vessels, who we can be earthen vessels for the supreme consciousness. They call this the anthropic principle, that everything is not just arbitrary and not chance, but there's a principle of creation. And that's really what the Upanishads are about, too, that somehow there is this infinite supreme being before time, before space, and in love wants to share consciousness with other free beings who can be creative and generous. And that is really core to the the whole Big Bang idea. This actually gained a lot of plausibility once the Big Bang was accepted. But absolutely, I mean, I think think people get very open-minded these days, and more so as we learn uh, all the things we're learning. Yeah. I want to talk with you about love in a minute, but uh, let's just take care of a question that came in. It's relevant to what we've been talking about in recent minutes. This is um, Kirsten from Sedalia, Missouri asks, I would love it if Stephen had any specific interventions or assignments that therapists can use with their clients and, of course, for themselves. I currently use some positive psychology interventions with my clients, and they are some of my go-to assignments I've been using for years. I would love to add some new practical interventions and assignments. Oh, that's great. Thank you very much, Kirsten. That's a very good therapeutic question. What I've observed is that in a good many adolescent psychiatry units, clinicians are now recommending, not necessarily Rx prescribing, but recommending 
volunteerism because the literature on uh, adolescence and volunteerism is very, very powerful in terms of overcoming or helping to overcome depression, anxiety disorders, and the like. Certainly hostility and bitterness and rumination, those things begin to fade into the rearview mirror when you get your mind off the self and the problems of the self and you just take an interest. So I've, I actually have a wonderful paper, which I can, I, I, I think I sent it to you, the Good to Be Good paper. Yeah, I don't think I ended up reading it. I was reading your book and stuff. I didn't get to that, though. It's all about the medical uses of giving and helping others. I I certainly heard you talk about that a lot in the many hours of things I listened to. Yeah, and you you cite specific examples and studies where they they kind of prove that giving has a beneficial or therapeutic effect. Yeah, across all age groups. So in, in California now, in San Francisco, there are a lot of geriatric clinics, and even going back 12 years now, who are recommending volunteerism for older adult patients because, you know, they're looking for meaning in life and they just need meals on wheels. If you give them an opportunity to select interesting community projects and involve themselves in it, it does a lot. There are very good studies showing that it extends their lives. They're physically healthier. They deal better with loss and disappointment. They're more resilient. They have deeper relationships. And so if you can give people the opportunity, now sometimes the light doesn't go on. Some people take to this, again, I'm thinking of Kirsten's question, you know, like a duck to water. And maybe about a third of people do. Actually, there are studies on this. And then a third of people are very hesitant. But then at some point, you know, the light beams. You know, they, 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 become, they become more radiant. And they realize maybe they need a good mentor in this, but they realize that they've come into themselves. And then there's a th- another third that's just kind of reticent and they're hard to get involved for some reason. Uh, you know, we've done studies. We have a great website called www.helpingotherslivesober.org, uh, which is Cleveland Clinic and Case Western. And it's all about adolescents not only overcoming addiction disorders, but overcoming depression as well. To me personally, when people come to me and, and they're struggling, I say, look, you know, time is on your side because a lot of the things that are really sensitive to you now, they'll fade as the years pass and you'll get that additional perspective on them. But also just keep helping people and doing unto others and you'll eventually get into a better state of mind. You've probably heard the word seva, right? Yeah. Seva. Tell us about it. So that means selfless service. There are a lot of spiritual teachers. It's, It's a Sanskrit word, but there are a lot of spiritual teachers who make Seva, one of the most, one of the central teachings, you know, that that they encourage their students to do. The idea is that you don't expect anything in return. That's why it's called selfless service. But it also tends to attenuate the ego. It tends to, you know, make you sort of more devoted and and altruistic and and expands the heart. And you know, I've met spiritual people, and perhaps I've been one myself at times, <laughs> who, um, despite all of their practice could still be quite egotistical or self-absorbed. Even people sometimes who've been meditating for decades, it's all about me, 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 and my routine and my experiences and this and that with very little concern about other people. So I think that seva, if it's a 
doesn't have to be your whole thing, but it could be for some people, but it as as an important component of your toolkit for spiritual development, it can keep things balanced and uh, develop you more holistically than if you just focused on sort of inner experience and to hell with everybody else. Yeah, absolutely true. And the Dalai Lama has been critical of some meditational practices in the Western world because it gets separated from compassionate action in yeah. the end, or at least even the intention, because sometimes you want to act compassionately, but circumstances preclude that. But at least the desire to act is important. And the action itself matters because in the sort of James Lang theory of emotions, that's why they say smile even if you don't want to because it tends to make people a little happier. The musculature builds into the emotional state. Um, So that's why uh, just helping others gives people the so-called helper's high, uh, or I call it the give and glow. I'm writing a book about that now. So it's very important. I also think, though, you know, in response to Kirsten, Gratitude exercises are good ones. Bob Emmons, uh, E-M-M-O-N-S, runs a gratitude institute at UC Davis, and he's profound, and he's got all these wonderful exercises for adolescents, but for everybody. Uh, Ev Worthington at uh, Virginia Commonwealth is another one. Uh, There are lots of different ways in which positive psychology, which is really more about only relational spirituality, you know, uh, it, it can be very helpful, and it doesn't require people to necessarily think in metaphysical terms. Mm-hmm. So it has its place. You wrote a book called um, Is Ultimate Reality Unlimited Love? And so uh, it'd be interesting to talk about love for a while. And a little earlier we were talking about, you know, how can there be a loving God if all this horrible stuff happens? And if God is the ultimate reality and God is unlimited love, how can the universe be such a difficult place to live in sometimes? Um, so let's let's kind of knock about the the notion of love from different angles and perspectives. Perhaps you know touching upon this, its ultimate meaning in some deep metaphysical sense. And any anything else you'd care to say about it? Because I know it's been a big focus of your work and your life. Well, I picked up a working definition of love just to be definitional. Um, from the writings of a psychiatrist at the University of Chicago named Harry Stack Sullivan. Great guy, and you know, long since deceased. But he said that when the happiness and the security of another is as real to you as your own, you love that person. Now, that's not appealing to Greek or Latin or Sanskrit or anything. It's just kind of everyday reality. And if you think about yourself, you know, uh, sitting with an old friend who's lost a child, if you're in the hospice working with someone who is moving on to another level of being, if you're looking over the crib of a newborn child, and it really works, that you just have that feeling, it's the oneness we're talking about that their security and their happiness is as real and meaningful to me as my own, or in some cases, more so. It doesn't set aside the love of self, because that's the standard. That's still there, and we always need to be self-compassionate and self-caring and so forth, but that's a pretty good working definition. If people can live in that space, they will generally live a happier and healthier, 
and longer life. But that's not really metaphysical because then you're getting into this question of ultimate reality. And is, is this actually a kind of beautiful energy that is all around the universe? I give the story in the book of the poet W.H. Auden. And Auden was kind of a hippie guy. I met him one time. No, I didn't meet him in person. I went to one of his poetry reading in Connecticut one oh. time. And speaking oh, of hippies, yeah. the, the people I were with were wearing all kinds of jingly beads and stuff like that. We made quite a commotion as we came in. But anyway, continue. <laughs> I like that. I like that. He used to spend a lot of time around Oxford. And he tells this story, which I quote in the book. It's 1933, and he's sitting with some friends. It's in the evening. They were having cocktails. And he wasn't particularly close to these friends. They were just more colleagues. No one had had a drink, and they were, they were, just, they were just there. And suddenly, he feels invaded by an energy, and he doesn't know where it's coming from. He consents to it, but it completely boggles him. And for the first time in his life, he says, because he was quite a mystic, he knew what it would mean to love your neighbor as yourself. Then he says, I had the intuition that they, too, were having the same experience. And so he asked one of them afterwards if they had that experience, and they said they had. So this is about really the ultimate spiritual nature of love. So I was sitting here in this office six years ago, and there was a young medical student, a great Korean-American student, who came from a relatively poor area of Queens, and she was having a hard time. She was brilliant, but she couldn't really adjust to the medical school culture. She felt like an outsider, and she was thinking about leaving school. So she knocks on my door. And she tells me about this, and I, I'm listening, and I say, look, email me. <laughs> I've got a lot of things going on that day. And we'll set up an appointment for early next week. So I'm sitting here, and I, I feel something palpably. It's this incredible warmth and this incredible energy. And I'd never quite had that experience before, and I actually swiveled in my chair, and I looked over my right shoulder, and there was nothing there to the naked eye. But, this very but you felt like it was behind you. I felt like it was just behind me over my right shoulder. Uh-huh. And that changed my behavior because it was so shocking. It was really like Auden's experience. And so what I said was, wait a minute, stay right here. And I canceled all my appointments for the afternoon. I spent the whole afternoon with this young gal. And she did take a year off. I became her mentor. She wrote a lot sort of journalistically about her experiences and adjusting to medical school. She's become a great doctor. She practices preventive medicine, and she was very successful. But I would have just really passed her by if I hadn't noticed something, and that was synchronicity too. I just took that seriously. I was confused by it. I couldn't quite figure it out, but it was so strong and ineffable that it changed my schedule for that afternoon, and that changed her life, and it changed my life. To me, that's another angel story. I feel like we're surrounded by higher beings. By higher, I mean subtler, I think. We're sort of gross flesh and blood. There, there's also subtler levels of creation, astral and celestial and so on. And, you know, those are as populated as our gross world is. And some of these beings are very much um, engaged in human welfare and human activities. And it was a, some, some such being who gave you that dream 
when you were in prep school. This might just sound like a belief, but I think there might be something to it. That the thing you just described was also an intervention by some higher being or higher intelligence. They know that you're, a, you're an easy one to get to do something. <laughs> so they've got their eye on you. Call them guides. Guides, you could say. Yeah, people talk about spirit guides. You could call them that. Something like that, yeah. Well, I think that that's a very worthwhile interpretation, and I appreciate it. Yeah. And it helps me to think through and understand it a little more deeply. And also, I also know people who see them routinely, and if they go into a, a room full of people, they'll see them kind of clustered around with some sort of attention on different people. I'm not like that. I, you know, would that I were, but, but my episodes are more every day, like, you know, the car in Terrytown. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just these little episodes. Well, actually, I don't know if you told the Terrytown story yet. That's the one where you got the $100 bill. So I had been at the U of Chicago, and then I spent a couple of years in Ann Arbor, Michigan as a postdoc, and I got a job at Fordham at the Marymount campus in Terrytown. And I'll tell you, rents are really steep in Terrytown. And I had to pay out, oh my gosh, about 8000 bucks just to get a one-bedroom apartment for my wife, myself, and our little uh, infant daughter who was two years old. And I was plum out of money. And I wasn't going to get a paycheck for a couple of days. And I didn't like to ask my parents for money. It just wasn't something I was willing to do. So we're, my wife and I and Emma are sitting in this car in front of the Howard Johnson's diner, just across from the Tappan Zee Bridge on the Terrytown side. And Mitsuko says, let's pray. We need some money. So we prayed. And she actually prayed for a $100 bill. And then she told me, somebody just hit our car. I said, Mitsuko, nobody, nobody hit our car. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't feel anything. She said, go out there, go out there. I know somebody did. So I went out reluctantly. I went out, and there was this big, huge African-American guy, big white suit, big white hat. He looked uh, uh, kind of like Church of God. I don't know. He looked very, very spiritual. And he said, oh, I'm so sorry. Let me pull this out. He opened up his wallet. And he pulled out a $100 bill. And that's just what we've been praying about. So I took it and I said, sir, you know, you are truly the answer to a prayer. And that's it. And then we went into, we went into the Howard Johnson's. We had lunch and it lasted us for a couple of days. You know, I did have a credit card. So we stayed at the, at the hotel across the way there. And I got a paycheck and things worked out. But that was a tremendous moment at that time because it just showed us that somehow or another, we were on the right path. We were on the right track. I'll tell you one of mine. I've told this before on Bat yet, but I think it's been a few years. I was in a TM movement facility in, in the Catskills and didn't have a car, and the, the, the nearest town was quite a few miles and so on. And I was staying in a certain room, that you know, and I needed a bunch of stuff. I needed some various kinds of office supplies and this and that. I wanted some Brasso because we had these puja sets that we would do pujas with, which are Vedic ceremonies, and mine needed shining. And I also had this pair of Florsheim shoes that had these decorative buckles on it, and I had gotten them wet and then put shoe trees in them, and when they dried, the buckles broke. And so I thought, how can I get more buckles for these shoes? So I got moved into a different room, and just about everything I needed was in that room. The previous occupant had left the stuff, you know, the, the office supplies I needed, the Brasso, but no shoe buckles, of course. So that night I went to dinner and I was walking down this hallway and something caught my eye 
on a air conditioner that was mounted in the hallway. And on top of the air conditioner, I looked up, and there was a pair of decorative shoe buckles that would perfectly fit my shoes. <laughs> Got them and put them on. There you go. You know. And so you can look at that. If this gets into probabilities, you can say that your experience with the buckles or my experience with that guy in front of the Howard Johnsons, that's just, it's, it's an improbable possibility. You can try to explain it as luck. But in the final analysis, that really doesn't work terribly well because it's just so, it's so uncanny and it's almost spooky. And it's not just that we're attributing meaning to it. I mean, some people would say that. They'd say, well, you're attributing meaning to things and we are meaning-making creatures, Sartre said. But I actually think there's an object, there can be a subjectivity to it. And maybe there are some things where we do attribute meaning that really isn't quite there. But there are these moments when we just know in our souls that this was set up. And there are so many of these stories. I mean, books and books and books have been written compiling stories like this. There's been thousands of them have been told and written down. Definitely can't be mere chance. Here's an interesting little tidbit that I cognized listening to you. You mentioned Carl Jung's story of the beetle. Uh, Explain that story and I'll tell you the tidbit. Well, Jung wrote a book entitled Synchronicity, and there are lots of little vignettes in the book, but there's one particular vignette, and I'll try to get it accurately. So Carl Jung was in his office, and he had a patient with him, a woman. He wasn't getting any place with her. Somehow, the whole relationship was frozen. He was very pessimistic, and she started telling him about a dream that she had, and it was a dream of an extremely rare silver beetle and he listened to that and then tap 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 on the window and he turned around and there was this amazingly rare beetle right there on the window and he let it slip into his palm and then he handed it over to her and she was so astonished by it and at that point they broke through and had a very meaningful therapeutic relationship well the little realization i had about that was that the the beetles before they called themselves the Beatles, called themselves the Silver Beatles. And I thought, wow, I never connected that with that story about Carl Jung. But maybe John Lennon had read some Carl Jung or something, and came, that's how they originally came up with that name. I don't know, but it gets into this thing of synchronicity, which sometimes involves not just that encounter that you might have at Howard Johnson's or on a bridge or whatever, but it can actually... Um, get to the level of, say, dad's Mercedes 190 breaking down at just the right moment. Yeah, yeah. Or or those buckles being exactly where they needed to be. In other words, somehow or another, synchronicity and this uh, setting up of the universe that we experience, if we notice it as such, that it can involve inanimate objects. It's very interesting. And again, it points to something. It points to a deeper intelligence that's orchestrating things, that's conscious of things, that is not limited by time and space, and that's sensitive to our deserve ability, if there's such a word, or lack of it. I mean, to me, it's like every single little atom of the universe is orchestrated by that intelligence, and everything is taken into account. It's like an infinitely powerful computer running the whole thing. That may be true, but what this brings to mind is the Rockwell image. Yes, the Rockwell image. I'm very big into Rockwell's picture of the golden rule, 
which he did in 1961. It was on the cover of Look Magazine. Wonderful image. People from every background. So I heard him give a talk about this when I was at St. Paul's as a kid. He came uh, up to New Hampshire from um, Stockbridge, Massachusetts, where he lived and had a studio. Uh, so he, he said, you know, you've got people from every culture, every background, every color, every age. Some of them are, you know, secular looking like the guy with the denim jacket rubbing his chin in the middle, which I think is Rockwell himself. And you've got the rabbis and the, you know, all these all these amazing people. And he says it's it's a shared humanity and there are no borders to the image because he wanted us to really recognize our oneness, our interdependence with one another. And then he said, look at the faces of these people. Now, your listeners can look at those faces. And he asked us, so what does it look like to you? And people said different things, but most of us said, well, they look very peaceful. They look very calm. And that's true because they're meditating on the positive version of the golden rule, not the negative version, which just means don't kick somebody in the shin. But use your imagination, you know, to ask yourself, how can I help other people around me and contribute to their lives? If you do that, Actually, there's a neurology of this. Your mesolimbic pathway kicks in, and you're doling out more dopamine, and there's a sense in which you achieve an inner happiness, a kind of radiance, what I call the giver's glow. But then he said, do you see the halo? Now, that's a big question for everybody. Just look at this picture for a minute and see if you can see a white circle in the middle of the picture. And you see it, right? It starts with the rabbi's beard and then there's a toddler if i recall on yeah the, on there's a nun holding a baby and then there's the rabbi and then the guy with the blue denim is kind of in the middle there but then there's a red-headed woman with a child dressed in white so basically there's this white circle. circle and what rockwell said to us he said you know i'm not that religious he was an episcopalian <laughs> he said i'm not that religious but he said i do believe in this energy of love this incredible power of love. And he said, if you, he actually made the analogy to surfing. He said, if you're surfing, you have to paddle really hard to get your board out in the water, and then you have to paddle faster even to catch a wave. So that's doing goodness. Small acts of goodness, of kindness, trying to keep yourself in a frame of mind of helping others, even when, there are difficult things happening, even when, as Bob said earlier, you know, uh, you may get some kickback. Uh, but if you if you paddle on that board, you will eventually catch the wave. And the wave is the halo. And once you catch the wave and that energy, all you have to you, you don't have to paddle anymore. All you have to do is stand up and balance yourself on the board, and it just takes you off in ways that you could never have imagined, ways that are faster than you could ever have paddled and more exciting, and more illuminating, and more thrilling. And so that's what that picture is really about. It's about, you know, preparing yourself in terms of, you know, trying to do good, intending to do good, regardless of, you know, reciprocal calculations and pay it back, but just try to do good, and keep at it, and eventually catch the wave. Yeah, and... um and I, I would say that trying to do good is not only a matter of doing, it's also a matter of being. There's a couple of verses in the Gita, this verse, chapter 2, verse 45 says, sort of transcend or be without the three gunas. And then three verses later, it says established in being or established in yoga, perform action. 
So it's like, you know, let's say a lifeguard is good. He's doing something good. He's saving lives in people might, who, who might be drowning. But if he doesn't know how to swim, he's not going to be a very good lifeguard. So you have to not only have the desire to save the drowners, you have to become a good swimmer. And that's obviously an alleg- um, analogy or allegory for what we need to do in, in terms of doing good in the world. Very much so. And they're obviously, you know, they're, the, the, a lot of these people in the image are spiritual and they have all kinds of different traditions. Some are Hindus, some are Buddhists, some are Jews, some are whatever, um, nativists. But the point is that, that if you have a spiritual practice and early in the morning, like we were saying before, if you can just make that space, even for 10 or 15 minutes, I do it for about 45 minutes in the morning, and really meditate and get to a point. I do loving kindness meditations. I envision the people I'm going to see over the course of the day. I, I keep my, my schedule in an old leather book. <laughs> so I actually kind of have a pretty good sense. And I, there are maybe 12 or 13 people I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run into and I have meetings with. And I put their image in my mind. And I say, may you be peaceful. May you be healed. May you be free from suffering and want. And then I go positively, I say, may you be called, right? May you be called. May you know joy and love and God. And I just focus my mind on them, the energy of my mind. And then when I come into work, you know, I have a pretty good intuitive sense of what's going on with them. And I'm able to connect really well. I'm actually, I mean, it's one of the few things that I'm known for doing effectively and I appreciate that, but it has to be set up. So it's your being, I mean, to get to your point, it's not just doing, but it's really taking the time inwardly to set up your being. And of course, if we're doing that, and there is this one mind, and if our minds are part of that larger mind, then it's affecting the minds of others in some ways too. So yeah. we can be as well as do. And of course, it's true of anything that you have to get good at it before applying it. You have, you know, whether you're going to be an airline pilot or a surgeon or a base professional baseball player or anything else, um, you can't just do it. You have to sort of hone your skills in order to do it. And I think that with regard to being a good human being, a giving, loving human being, um, you, you, you may or may not be born with it, but to whatever extent you are, you can culture it. Like, for instance, I mentioned Danny and Brinkley earlier. He was a sharpshooter in Vietnam, and he, he killed people and so on. And then he had four near-death experiences. And in every near-death experience, he experienced, he had the whole life review thing where he experienced not only what he had gone through, but he experienced it from the perspective of the people whom he had influenced. So if he shot somebody in Vietnam, he experienced it from the perspective of that person's family and what it meant to their family to have the, the provider killed and so on and so forth. So he, he really felt all the implications of all the significant actions of his life. Well, well it can be cultivated. He ended up becoming a hospice guy. He helps people transition into dying, and he's dedicated his life to that in many, for many years now. Yeah, absolutely. So... My deep job is the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love, but I, I have a beautiful day job. I'm a ward of the taxpayer of the state of New York, and I have a center teaching medical humanism and compassionate care. And we have all kinds of really interesting techniques, and we believe that we can nurture this, we can cultivate this in our medical students, and they have a reputation 
for being kind. And we do all kinds of role-playing things. We create uh, small uh, communities of trust where they can talk about their interactions with patients and good role modeling and bad role modeling. And so they can, I, they can form their professional identity in a compassionate way when there's so much pressure against that because you've got to have more revenue units and so forth. Well, you know, um, this center's been pretty successful. We actually, the school just won the Alpha Omega Alpha Professional Identity Annual Award, which is the best thing you can get in medical education for teaching compassion. And we do, I also have a, some great people from Compassion International who will come in and work with us and do meditational type things. When I came here, though, people just really, one guy just glared at me. I mean, I was coming up the escalator like the first day I was on the job, and he looked like kind of Mr. Clean with his arms folded, you know, like this, crossed the chest. And he said, are you Dr. Post? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, have you come here to save us? And I said, well, I'm not sure of that, but I'm going to try to do a good job. And, of course, eventually we really created a cultural transformation. And that's what you need in medicine today because it's not just technical skill sets and biology and objectification, but so much of it is the habits of the heart. And we've been able to do a lot of that as demonstrated by all kinds of measures. And so, yeah, you can cultivate this stuff. I just really believe in this. It's not that it's the simplest thing in the world. And you're going to get opposition here and there because there are always sharks in the water. Are there many medical schools which have a program like that? Or is this kind of uncommon? It's very uncommon. I mean, I was at Case Western Med for 20 years, and we had a center for bioethics. That's just, you know, do you put a feeding pig in a, someone who's 92 years old and dying of dementia? Probably not. You know, uh, use applesauce. <laughs> give, them some, give them a good drink and let them pass. Those are quandaries, you know, do you or don't you? What do you do with a neonate who's born at 22 weeks? Do you try to save it or let it go? But ours is completely unique because it's medical humanities. The students all read great classics like When Breath Becomes Air, stories and books about people who have been ill and what their experiences are and how they navigate hope and despair and meaning and purpose despite all. And then also compassionate care. How do you elicit these empathic virtues like humility, you were talking about that before, humility, kindness, empathy, compassion. How do you develop those in people and make it tangible and observable so that you can convince your community that that's how you're operating? So, yeah, it's been great. So have you been able to quantify the results in terms of the effect this has had on the doctors and also on their patients? I mean, it seems like it could be measurable. Well, we have. So medical students, unfortunately, in a whole number of studies, they lose their empathy once they get out of the preclinical, they lose it temporarily, out of the preclinical years into the clinical settings because they're experiencing uh, patient care. They're, um, They're under pressure to learn technical skill sets. They see uneven role modeling. They get some uh, role models who are very jaded and cynical and some who are great, but it's a mixed bag out there. world's been burning since the world's been turning. We bring the students out of their clerkship, their clinical experiences, in small circles of trust, we call them, and they talk about empathy and kindness and role modeling. And if they see something that they don't like, there was a young guy who said, I was with my team, 
and they made a derisive joke within earshot of a patient. And I wondered, should I laugh? Because if I laugh, I'll get a better evaluation. <laughs> he said, I'm not going to laugh. And then he said, should I even smile? He said, I'm not even going to smile. He just stood there. And then a nurse approached him a little later and said, I noticed how you handled yourself. This is him talking in a small reflection group. Why don't you diplomatically approach the team and talk about your experience, how you felt as a medical student witnessing that? And he did. And this team very favorably viewed him in a positive way and said that wouldn't happen again. So he told our reflection group about that. And what that does is it allows them in real time to talk about those experiences that would actually work contrary to their own moral integrity, their own compassionate hopes and aspirations, so they can share it as a group and in a concerted way create a culture. So we have all these groups going on all over the institution, and what happens is you get recognized by the national accrediting bodies. The, you know, every 10 years they come to medical students, and one of the things they got from the students, the faculty, from everybody was that we have a compassionate community. That doesn't happen in modern medicine very easily. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, sure, patients can be aware of it. If, if that patient that they cracked the joke about was conscious, how would he have felt, you know, if it was at his expense? And I'm sure that there's some kind of correlation between the compassion of the doctor and the, you know, the healing of the patient, patient outcomes. Yeah. Yeah, and I read a lot about that. I mean, the benefits for the patients are incredible. There's a guy at Cleveland Clinic who was a heart surgeon. He wanted to know what got matched patients out of the clinic quicker if they'd had the same surgery, same open-heart surgery. And what he found out, the most predictive factor was whether they could say that their surgeon, not the team, I mean, the team's important, you know, but their surgeon, that principal relationship, their surgeon was empathic and kind. And if they could do that, they got out earlier. And so there are benefits for patients. They're much better able to manage chronic illnesses where they have to do treatments like for diabetes and so forth. But also it's great for the clinicians because they have to balance their lives. But if they can stay in tune with compassion, they're much happier and they stay with it and they're protected from burnout. Although they can be compassion fatigued, so that's a complicated thing. And it's great for the institution's reputation. Everybody wins. Before we run out of time, do you want to talk about Sir John Templeton and the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love? I do. One of the most wonderful things that ever happened to me in my life was meeting Sir John Templeton. Uh, and uh, he became a mentor for me. I worked with him setting up things around the country and around the world on forgiveness and gratitude and wisdom and so forth. And Explain who this- he was a little bit. He was a philanthropist, but he founded a a mutual fund called the Templeton Fund. It was one of the most successful funds in the 70s and 80s. He made a lot of money. He actually believed in this idea of the one mind. So he left all his money at the interface of science and spirituality to study these great human assets, like love, like kindness, like forgiveness, like gratitude. But then he wrote me in a, he actually was a great, faxer. He loved the facts. He didn't email. He faxed. He said, don't just study human love, but the love that made humans, which is really insightful because he thought it was arrogant. He felt it was arrogant to just say, well, we're going to study human love. I mean, there's a lot you can study about human love, 
But he thought there was a deeper love, the kind of love that I was experiencing with that medical student in the room or that W.H. Auden experienced on that green in, in Oxford. So what happened was I'm, I'm sitting in my office at Case Western. I get a fax from Sir John. Stephen, we should found an institute that can study this sublime spiritual love with the highest methods of science that we have. And I faxed back, Sir John, that's a great idea. Let's do it. What should we call it? And then he faxed back, the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love. And I had a moment of trepidation because I also do, you know, like genetics, you know, uh, in Alzheimer's and I've done work on pharmaceuticals, different kinds of things. And I'm in a very sciencey environment. So I, but I'm I'm very spiritual too, but I, I have to think about boundaries a little bit. So I, I, I faxed him back. I said, Sir John, maybe we should call this, this is in the year two, uh, 2000, the Institute uh, for Creative Altruism, which is a very sciencey kind of dry, arid term that's more acceptable. Yeah. <laughs> and he faxed back, no, the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love, up to $8.9 million. And now, I don't know what your audience would say about this, but pause, okay? I, I faxed back. I said, Sir John, I love that language. It jumps right off the page. <laughs> and, it was born. and it was a great thing that he said because it allowed us to work with the scientific community, but also with spiritual communities and have lots of things going on and sort of acknowledge the metaphysical side of this, which, which you know, we, were, we were funding things at IONS, uh, Institute of Noetic um, yeah. Sciences. Yeah, 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 there and in many different places. So we were going beyond what would be sort of coin of the realm in the secular scientific sense. But it's been great, and I love Sir John, and he was one of the biggest influences in my whole life. So what are some of the things the Institute has accomplished, and how has it sort of um, worked at the interface of science and spirituality? What has it done there? Well, we funded about 100 and some odd really high-level studies at universities and at nonprofits around the country, and including Canada. Um, all of these have to be um, at the science and spiritual interface. A lot of them have been very, very powerful. People have, been, have developed some of the go-to uh, scales for, say, daily spiritual experiences and so forth. A lot of people have benefited from this. Uh, neurologists, uh, evolutionary biologists, physicists, mathematicians. I put, a, <clears throat> I put an advertisement in the Chronicle for Higher Education in 2001 asking social scientists around the U.S. if they wanted to uh, teach courses on spirituality Love and the Social Sciences. One guy responded. These were $5,000 awards. His name was Matt Lee, Matthew T. Lee. He was a criminologist at the University of Akron, because I'm in Cleveland, Ohio at the time. He responds. We gave him a grant. Two or three months later, I was reading in the Akron Beacon Journal about this guy at Akron, and hundreds of people were signing up for his class on unlimited love. And he was no longer a criminologist. He was doing something else completely. He was so successful that he started a, a whole wing of the American Sociological Association on the spiritual and scientific study of unlimited love. 
He wrote books. Uh, he did incredible stuff. And two years ago, I wrote a six-page letter for Matt Lee to Harvard because there was an opportunity there to become the director of empirical research on kindness and flourishing. I wrote a six-page letter for this guy. It's the longest letter I ever wrote for an applicant, you know. He got the job. So right now, Matt Lee, he's left Akron. He's the only guy who's ever, or gal who's ever gotten out of the University of Akron and made it to Harvard. And they love him there. And he's conducting this incredible research all over Harvard, all over the globe. And he's just the cat's meow. You know, we had essay contests with young people. That gets to the UN story. I could tell you that in a briefly. Uh, so I love Chagall. Chagall's powerful for me because it turns out when he was 17, he'd run away from home. His dad in a small city in Russia ran a factory and insisted that his son work in the factory. It was actually a, a factory that pickled herring, okay? It was a Hasidic Jewish family. And just like me with Bill de Bono, Chagall wasn't going to have anything to do with that. So he ran away to St. Petersburg and he lived on the streets. And he wasn't an artist at the time other than he sketched. So he would sketch people on the corners and he slept in an alleyway. And there was a big mattress in the alley. There was no ceiling. And one night he's kind of asleep, but he's kind of not. And he's got a big heavy set worker uh, sharing the mattress with him. And he sees this incredible flood of beautiful radiant blue light in the darkness. And he can't figure it out. And then he sees an angel with white wings floating down. And then the angel ascends and leaves the light behind him. The next day, Mark Chagall, the greatest painter of the 20th century, in my view, painted the apparition, which is the painting of a white angel against a blue background. All his great paintings were in blue. All his, all his beautiful stained glass windows uh, at the UN or wherever in blue. When he died, he was painting a blue angel in his studio outside of Paris. And he said, blue is the color of love. So I loved Chagall, and, and, and I, was, I studied Chagall, and I even did a course on Chagall when I was at Fordham. So I, actually, I was invited in 2014 to go to Peconico Hills behind Terrytown and do a presentation on the spirituality of Chagall, because that's where his Good Samaritan Blue Angel window is. And I drove home that night, and I got back to the office in my, in my home. It's about 2 in the morning. And I had an email from Duray Ahmad, who's a very famous spiritual Muslim feminist. And she said, the website, she's on the board of the, of the Institute, the website's been taken down. And there was the image of the ISIS flag, and it said Team DZ ISIS. And they were taking down websites that fall left and right. So I wasn't sure what to do about it, but I called my board the next day. Most of them were in Cleveland. And they said, let's have an essay contest. So we, we, we distributed a contest. We were giving students age 12 and 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, cash awards for writing essays, powerful essays about how they push back against peer pressure to hate other people just because they didn't share their beliefs. And lo and behold, we got thousands of applications. Well, I was, I was co-chairing the UN Population Fund project on spirituality and sustainable development at the time. They heard about this. So in August of 2016, the Institute filled the entire UN headquarters with young people who came from all over the world. And they performed these, these beautiful poems. They did rap stuff. And it was all about unlimited love and how they pushed back against hatred. 
and got the papers. And that's how I kind of end the book, because to me, the whole thing was I, I didn't set that up. I did not set that up. It was just it just came to me from the universe. And I thought a lot of it was just synchronicity. And, and it was such a beautiful experience. And it's still one of the high points of my life. So the moral of that story is you turned lemons into lemonade. Yeah, expanding the canvas. I mean, I always come to that. You know, you got to take those blotches, no matter how blotchy they look, and they can look pretty blotchy, you know. And like oh, you have to just cover them with these luminous, radiant, energizing lines. And then there it is, one of the most beautiful works in the museum. That's great. As we speak, you're in the one of the main epicenters, perhaps the the main epicenter on, in the world right now, or at least in the U.S. of the coronavirus. And um, you're not a doctor per se, but you're you can look out your window and see the tents that people are being kept in, and you're very much involved in the situation. And there's all kinds of ethical situations about keeping people on ventilators. We won't get into all that. Do you have any sort of kind of long-range view. I mean, I mean, a lot of people feel like, all right, this is something that we kind of felt was coming. We didn't know what it would be, but the world couldn't just continue to go on as it had been. We're doing ourselves in at the rate we're going, and there's got to be a, a shift somehow. Something's got to change, a phase transition, and perhaps this is it. And perhaps, uh, you, you mentioned earlier, actually, that you see a very bright future, and perhaps you see what we're going through now as a kind of purging or something that will help us transition into that very bright future. So is there anything you can say to elaborate on that before we conclude? You know, in, in the Hebrew Bible, there's this idea of the angel of death. It's a very bizarre idea. It's very hard to get a handle on it. But these are episodes where somehow or another, just because of the spiritual decadence of humanity at a particular time, Something has to happen, and it's not easy, it's not simple, and no one pretends that the suffering is is anything but very real. But I believe this is one of those blotch points I keep talking about. Every day I hear about incredible scientific discoveries. People are learning how to treat these patients. They're figuring it out. They're getting higher percentages off the ventilators and out of the intensive care unit. They're beginning to learn about this. And I, so scientifically, it's a breakthrough moment, hugely breakthrough moment. We're going to be shocked at how much we learn. But it's also a spiritual breakthrough moment. You know, my son is with us from New York City. He works in finance in the World Trade Center. He's been with us for almost four weeks. And we're so happy. We've reconnected with him. And we're being meditational and prayerful. There's a beauty to it all. I think people take their relationships more seriously. They, they see value in their lives and they're reprioritizing. And they're saying, you know, those routines I was experiencing before, they were getting in the way of my real flourishing. So I see this as very positive. I, I, I know that's not, I hope it's not Pollyannish. I view it as positive. I think we're going to come out of this and we are going to grow in ways that right now we can hardly even imagine. I think this is a transition point. Worldwide, I love a quote from Eleanor Roosevelt, and it makes sense for a kid at 15 who had a Blue Angel dream. Her quote is this, the future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams. I want everybody to dream. You know, I'm here with you, Rick, today, and we're dreaming. 
we're dreaming about the future. And there's going to be things happening. You know, people are realizing how in, interdependent we are and how responsible we are for one another. And they're digging deep and they're regaining spiritual qualities. There's a lot that's happening. And I don't think we're going to go back to being same old, same old, you know, just going from point A to point B to point C in a routine every day. I think we're breaking out of it. And I don't know exactly what the outcome will be, but I'm very hopeful. I don't mean optimistic because that's not always realistic. I mean, I'm a hopeful realist. I think people understand that we need to get it together for our own species, for all life, for the planet Earth, for the cosmos. And this will be a time we'll look back on and we will begin to see that our dreams can come true. Very nice. You know, I was thinking a few minutes ago as you were talking about that guy from Akron who ended up at Harvard doing this wonderful thing and how popular it is there. And then what you do and and what a good thing it is in your hospital and yet how rare it is. And if you look at all the hospitals in the country, I was thinking that, you know, maybe guys like you and him are just sort of avant-garde who are just doing something that you know, 10 years from now might be quite mainstream, as we've seen happen over and over again in the world, certain things, a few people do it. And then next thing you know, everybody's doing it. So, you know, could be that a decade from now, the kind of stuff you're doing, all this empathetic, compassionate, giving kind of behavior will be institutionalized in a, in a good sense of the word. And uh, will be from preschool on through all education, all professions, everything else that kind of thing will be an essential component and, and, and imagine the impact that could have. Oh, it's happening. And we funded some of the early use of meditational techniques in the grade schools, first and second grade in Baltimore. Mm, cool. And the outcomes are amazing. You know, kids not having the same level of deficit disorders, their behaviors improve, they're more interested in learning. I mean, we can turn this around and it's happening. It's got to be uh, institutionally based, so it really gets into the culture. But I'm definitely seeing a lot of good things, and I'm very hopeful ab- about the about the future. Yeah, I have a good friend who's the head of the David Lynch Foundation, which teaches meditation in schools and prisons and PTSD people and all that kind of stuff. And it's really quite profound the, the effects in inner city schools, the way kids turn around dramatically, whole schools turn around dramatically when once people have access to that sort of inner potential that we all possess. Yeah, very much so, very much so. So I see it happening in a lot of different places. But, you know, as Gandhi said, um, you know, uh, for anybody who's really innovative and a little bit out of the box, you know, at first they ignore you, how's it go, and then they persecute you, and then they accept you or something like that. Yeah, and and then they just sort of... (laughs) I forget, it's a beautiful little sequence of phrases, but eventually it's like, oh, yeah, we always knew that. <laughs> I mean, when I, when I got started with the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love at Case Western University School of Medicine in a very secular department with a Freudian psychiatrist who was my department chair <laughs> who loved Freud and Machiavelli. I mean, people were rolling their eyes and they wondered, what happened to Stephen? That was difficult. But it turned out beautifully, and and I feel so comfortable. Just have confidence in your dreams, and they'll 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 work. Just recognize the beauty of what we're saying. Be careful. I also have another favorite quote from Reinhold Niebuhr, the theologian at, at Columbia and Union: uh, "The children of light." I'm using this metaphorically. The children of light must have the cunning 
of the children of darkness, but none of their malice. The children of light must have the cunning of the children of darkness, but none of their malice. Because there's a lot of times running an institute, staying afloat in big medical centers, where, like I say, you know, there were people who wanted to just kind of eliminate what I do. But um, you have to be wise and you have to be diplomatic. You can't be overbearing. If you're going to be successful, you have to have a lightness of being. I'm very mirthful. I tell cute, non-derisive little jokes, you know, where the Easter bunny go for breakfast, I hop. (laughs) Where the fish say when it swam into the wall, damn, I'm not (laughs) into this. And and I do, I want people to feel comfortable around me and not threaten. Yeah, that's a good one. What did Grouch, what did uh, Kermit the Frog say uh, about time? Time's fun when you're having flies. (laughs) There's one for you. I like that. (laughs) Here's another one for you from Groucho. He said, uh, Time flies like an arrow. Fruit flies like a banana. Oh, that's fabulous. Okay, you, you, need, that. you need that too to be successful. Yeah, yeah. You need to have the lightness of being. You know, this is the sort of dialectic. The balance between seriousness and levity is crucial. If you're just too serious, you'll never get any place. Interesting, which is an interesting thing because very often you see people who have a lot of weight on their shoulders, you know, who are behind great world missions, tons of responsibility. They're very happy people. Well, look at Templeton. I mean, he, look, at it, look at his, his face. He's just this beaming, glowing. He just looks like he's a wise little old elf or something, full of joy. And yet he was a multi-billionaire, you know, with undoubtedly tons of responsibility. He was really buoyant. So when he died, he died in uh, 2008. He was in Lyford Key in Nassau. And his son, Jack Templeton, who was a trauma surgeon at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, calls me. And he said, Dad is dying, and he has a request for you. I said, oh, my gosh, Jack, I'll do anything for Sir John. What's the request? He wants you to write a book that kind of brings together his ideas because he's not going to have time to write it. And I said, well, I'll give it a try. It's kind of a daunting task. What's the title? Did he give you a title, Jack? And Jack said, yeah, he gave, gave, gave you a title. He, he said, uh, ultimate reality is unlimited love. And then I said to Jack, Jack, do me a favor. Go back to dad and ask him if we can have a question mark. So Jack came back like I had a flip phone. I was actually on Route 80 when I did this. I left it on and Jack, Jack said, yeah, he says, is ultimate reality unlimited love, question mark. And I felt like some of the pressure was off me. <laughs> so I wrote that book just for Sir John. I mean, I mean, it, it, wasn't a, it was in the Templeton Press, so it wasn't a bestseller. But, but I wrote it for Sir John because he was the guy who really believed in this stuff. And, and he, you know, he would be so happy to hear us talking. Maybe he's hearing us talking. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe he was that, that light over your right shoulder that made you... Take that girl more yeah. seriously. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. Anyway. I'm, I'm officiating at her wedding, by the way. Oh, very cool. New, at the summer, you know? Nice. Very good. Well, it's really been a joy getting to know you and uh, having a couple hours with you. You're the embodiment of everything you talk about and write about. Well, you too, Rick. I mean, I, I can tell you. I mean, oh my gosh, you do a beautiful job. And your insights and experience, I mean... I felt like I was uh, in one of the nicest conversations I've had in 20 years. Well, great. Well, thank you so much. Um, me too. I really, I really enjoyed this. 
So, do you know Kurt Johnson, by the way? I do know Kurt. Yeah, he's been on my show. He's an old friend of mine. Um, Kurt wrote a very nice on interspirituality. Yeah, right, right, exactly. And and, and he's done I, some of that I, stuff at the UN and everything. I figured that that's why you might know him. Yeah, I've encountered him a couple of times, and I, I respect him. I think his book on interspirituality is an important book uh, and worth worth people paying attention to. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Pardon? But I think that's the title. Yeah, it's um, the, uh, the Coming Interspiritual Age, I think it's called. Anyway, yeah. you can tell it's hard to hang up with you, but um, we better wrap it up. So, <laughs> so thanks, okay. a, thanks a lot, Stephen. I've really enjoyed talking to you. And thanks to those who've been hanging in there with us all this time. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation. Next week, I'll be talking to a very interesting gentleman named Bayo Akomolafe. He's from Africa, but he lives in Chennai, India. And I saw him speak at the Science and Non-Duality conference in October. And the t- title of his talk was something like, The Times Are Urgent, We Must Slow Down, which we appear to have done. So I think he was very prescient giving that talk. If anyone wants to email me, it's just post at stephengpost.com. Okay, so and I'll Steve- put that on your BatGap page also so they can just click it if they want to email you. Post at stephengpost.com. Well, thanks, okay. Stephen. The pleasure. Thank you, Rick. Thanks for, to all your listeners. Yep. Hope to meet you in person one of these days. I look forward to it. Okay. Be well. All right. Thanks, people. See you next week.